is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Okay, well, thanks, James, for both the invitation to this seminar and to the very kind introduction that you've just given. Um, It's a great pleasure to participate in, I think, this very important seminar series on the making of global refugee policy. We got off to a great start last week with James's own presentation, and I hope that I can just, uh, with Mary Beth, maintain that same kind of standard. Today, as James has already said, we'll be looking at the making and implementation of one specific global refugee policy, namely UNHCR's policy on refugee protection and solutions in urban areas, which as many of you will know, I think, was a document that was first released in September 2009. And what we're going to try and do over the next half an hour or so is a number of different things. Firstly, we're going to look at the different forces, pressures and actors that have influenced UNHCR policy in this domain of urban refugees. Secondly, we're going to try and identify some of the constraints on the policy-making process and thereby explain the long delay in the formulation of this particular UNHCR policy. And as you'll see from the first slide, I've titled this presentation Better Late Than Never because UNHCR started to revise its urban refugee policy in 1997 but didn't actually succeed in doing so until 2009. So it was a very long process indeed. And one of the things we'll be doing in this presentation is to try and explain some of the constraints that led to that delay and led to that outcome. Thirdly, we'll be looking a little bit at the substantive nature of the policy as it's evolved over the last 15 years or so. Try to examine the substantive changes that have taken place in UNHCR's approach to the issue of refugee protection and solutions in urban areas. And then finally, and this is where Mary Beth will will play the dominant role, we'll be looking at the efforts which have been made to move from from policy formulation to policy implementation looking at some of the strategies and tactics that UNHCR has used in an attempt to make sure that the policy has been effectively and fully implemented, but also, again, trying to identify some of the obstacles that the organisation has encountered in the implementation process. Now, before I start uh, the substantive part of my presentation, just two things I'd like to say. One is this is not a presentation which is based on any research in the conventional sense of the word research. It's based very much on my own and Mary Beth's own participation in the process of policy making and policy implementation in UNHCR over the period that we'll be covering. And I think, you know... uh, Almost inevitably, given the background that we're coming from, there's going to be quite a high level of subjectivity in our analysis. And I think something I would encourage people to do, if you're looking for a research topic, is actually to go through the same ground and to see whether, on the basis of research, the kind of analysis that we're presenting this afternoon is actually borne out by the evidence, because we're speaking very much from a personal involvement. I think to get a kind of independent check on what we're saying would be uh, extremely useful. Uh, And then a second point I'd just like to make quickly before I go further is to say we're going to focus very specifically on 
the evolution and implementation of UNHCR's urban refugee policy. We're not going to try and extrapolate from the urban case study to broader issues of policy making within UNHCR, within the international refugee regime. But hopefully, as we go through the presentation, you'll hear things said which kind of ring a bell and which may be uh, there are parallels uh, that you've come across in other areas of policy making uh, by UNHCR and other humanitarian agencies. And thirdly, we'll be adopting a broadly chronological approach, taking the story from 1997 up until the present day. I'll be covering essentially the period 1997 to 2012-2013, which was when I left UNHCR. And that was the point at which Mary Beth assumed responsibility for the issue within the Policy Development and Evaluation Service. And she's going to bring us up to date with the story. Okay, let me, to begin, take you back then to the beginning of this story, 1997, which was the date at which UNHCR introduced its first urban refugee policy. And the first question I want to pose and then try to answer is what exactly were the considerations, what exactly were the pressures, what exactly were the variables that motivated UNHCR to introduce an urban refugee policy at this particular moment in time, 1997? Let me begin by saying what I don't think it was about. Firstly, I don't think it was about numbers. In the mid-1990s, the number and proportion of urban refugees remained relatively small. It was probably larger than UNHCR recognised it to be, but I don't think there was any particular surge in numbers which prompted UNHCR to move into the formulation of an urban refugee policy. So my first argument would be it's nothing to do with numbers. And I'd also perhaps a little bit more like controversially like to suggest that the introduction of the new policy in 1997 had very little to do with UNHCR's mandate for refugee protection and refugee solutions. Instead, as we're going to suggest uh, in the next couple of slides, we're going to suggest that the 1997 urban refugee policy was not a particularly protection-sensitive document. It was not a particularly protection-sensitive document. Instead, we'd like to suggest that the policy as introduced in 1997 had a lot to do with fear. A lot to do with fear. And on the next slide, we've identified a number of specific fears that were driving the organisation to develop a policy on urban refugees at this particular moment in time. I'd better attach this. Whoops. So the first fear within UNHCR that was driving the formulation of urban refugee policy at this time was fears over the organisation's funding base. In 1996, just before this policy was introduced, the UNHCR budget totaled around $960 million. But in November of the following year, 1997, as this policy was being formulated, Mrs Zagata, the High Commissioner at the time, made an announcement to the General Assembly that she thought the anticipated income for 1997 would be just $830 million. In other words, a substantial reduction from the previous year. And then if you look at that statement that Mrs Zagata made to the General Assembly in November 1997, she goes on to say that the UNHCR budget had declined by a total of 25% since 1995. 
Now, for those of you who have known UNHCR more recently with its ever-escalating budget, you may not know that there was a time when UNHCR was in financial problems, but at this time, UNHCR was extremely concerned about its funding base, had seen 25% of its budget being lost, and really had to find some kind of response to that situation. And what I would like to argue is that not surprisingly in such a context, the organisation began to look very hard for ways to save money and to make existing resources go further. Now, how exactly could money be saved? I think perhaps inevitably the organisation was forced into a process of what we could call triage. In other words, trying to maximise the savings it could make while also trying to maintain while trying to minimise the number of people affected by the cuts which it made. It had to start making decisions. Where do we spend money and where don't we spend money? And one of the conclusions of that process of where do we cut money was very much on urban refugee programmes. Now, why was there such um, a readiness at this particular moment in time, 96, 97, 98? Why was such a readiness to cut programmes for urban refugees. And here on the slide, I've tried to suggest a number of different reasons. Firstly, per capita costs. When the financial people in UNHCR started to look at the budget and to see where cuts could be made, where savings could be made, they came to the conclusion that assisting and protecting refugees cost very different amounts of money in different contexts. And they came to the conclusion that it was much more expensive to provide assistance and protection to refugees in urban areas than it is to provide protection and assistance to refugees living in refugee camps. And of course, food, water, shelter, other relief items can indeed be provided at a relatively low cost when large numbers of refugees are concentrated in specific camps and in specific settlements. It clearly is more expensive on a per capita basis to assist a relatively small number of refugees who are scattered across major cities such as Bangkok, such as Cairo, or such as Nairobi. So it was not just a question of saving money, it was also a question of looking where per capita costs could be uh, saved most readily. But there was also a whole batch of other reasons why there was a general readiness at this time to cut um, the programs for urban refugees, and I've listed them here on the slide. My recollection is that the narrative about urban refugees at this time was an extremely negative one. Urban refugees were seen to be dependent. Many, well not many, but those refugees living in urban areas often received monthly cash payments from UNHCR. They would come to the UNHCR office every month, be given a little brown envelope, and in it would be some dollars or some local currency, and that would be their major source of income and source of livelihood. And there was a growing feeling within UNHCR that if you just keep giving people cash payments month after month, year after year, they would become very dependent on that assistance. And the whole notion of the dependency syndrome which is one that I personally reject, but the whole notion of the dependency syndrome in refugee situations was a very prevalent one at this time. There was also a sense within UNHCR that urban refugees had what was often called a sense of entitlement, a sense of entitlement. Urban refugees, it's true to say, were often better educated than refugees in camps. They were often more articulated. They were more articulate than refugees living in camps. I think it's probably true to say that in many situations a 
higher proportion of refugees in urban areas spoke English and were able to actually communicate with UNHCR. And so this notion grew up within UNHCR that urban refugees were not really the real refugees. The real refugees are those who go to camps and stay in camps and live on minimal levels of assistance. And these people living in urban areas who had developed this dependency syndrome and this sense of entitlement were not really refugees, as I've put in the bullet point to follow. Another issue which was really, really dominant within the UNHCR discourse at this particular moment in time and for the best of my recollection, I can't remember why this was, but one of the dominant discourses going on, and you can find this in UNHCR speeches and documents, was the whole notion of irregular movement. Now, of course, today we talk about irregular movement in the Mediterranean, people coming from North Africa to Europe, etc. This was not what was referred to as irregular movement in the 1990s. Irregular movement in the 1990s referred to refugees who left their country of origin moved to a country of asylum, but then subsequently moved on to other countries. And there was a lot of um, soul-searching within UNHCR this time about why was irregular movement taking place, and indeed how do you actually stop irregular movements from taking place. And one of the kind of basic assumptions of this discourse held by many UNHCR staff members was that people were shopping around. You know, levels of assistance were often different in different urban areas, and people would move around looking for the best deal. So the notion of irregular movement was very dominant at this time and played into this whole formulation of the 1997 urban refugee policy. As I've already said, a kind of a doubt as to whether these were the genuine refugees, the best refugees are staying in camps, the difficult ones are those who come to urban areas. And I've put the three Ds here. Urban refugees were perceived by many UNHCR staff members as being difficult, demanding, and even dangerous. These were the guys that when you got to the office in the morning, they were standing on the doorstep saying, we want assistance, we want resettlement, we want this, we want that. Whereas the good refugees were sitting in the camps being satisfied with what they were given. So they were perceived as very much a difficult group of refugees, a demanding group of refugees, and even a dangerous group of refugees. And then the final fear that existed within UNHCR was that of the pull factor. And this is very much associated with the whole question of irregular movement. The assumption was that if you provided refugees in urban areas with a decent standard of living, reasonable levels of assistance, reasonable opportunities for livelihoods, then everybody would want to come to the city, nobody would want to stay in a camp. And this was a time, of course, where many refugee hosting states were putting enormous pressure on UNHCR to ensure that refugees stayed in camps and didn't move to urban areas. And so there was a clear assumption within UNHCR that, you know, if you're nice to urban refugees, to put it crudely, then they will just come in their hundreds, their thousands, and even hundreds of thousands. That was not the situation UNHCR wanted to see, particularly because it would jeopardise the organisation's relationship with many refugee-hosting states. So those were the kind of key, what I would consider to be the key drivers of uh, UNHCR's 1997 urban refugee policy. And if you look at the key characteristics and the key elements of the 1997 policy, I think you can see how those pressures kind of played out. Firstly, if you read the document, and I just read it again a couple of days ago for the purposes of this seminar, if you read it, it's very negative in tone. I mean, to put it very crudely, it says, you know, if you're not very nice to urban refugees, then with a bit of luck, they'll go away and won't bother you anymore. It's negative in tone. 
One of the key concepts of the 1997 policy is that of the legitimate urban caseload, which of course begs a very big question about who is legitimate and who is illegitimate. If you look again at the policy, then it identifies a very small number of exceptional cases who are considered to be the legitimate urban caseload. People who need urgent medical uh, attention, people who have educational opportunities in a city which uh, they wish to take up, and those who have been accepted for resettlement and are waiting to be transferred to their resettlement country. The 1997 policy identified these three exceptional cases as essentially the legitimate urban caseload, which can only lead to the conclusion that any other refugee living or moving to a city was, in fact, illegitimate. And again, this is spelled out quite clearly in the policy when it says very directly that accommodation in refugee camps should be the norm for prima facie refugees. In other words, if people are recognised on a, a prima facie basis, then they should go straight to camps and remain there. There may be some exceptions for asylum seekers who have to submit an individual claim to refugee status, but for prima facie refugees, they should go to and remain in camps. In terms of dissuading people from coming to urban areas, the 1997 policy said very clearly that assistance should not be provided to refugees living in urban areas. And this was quite a turnaround because, as I've already said, in the past UNHCR had given out these monthly payments or stipends, as it described them, to refugees living in urban areas. Now the thrust of the policy was not to provide assistance in urban areas and to encourage refugees to become self-reliant and to establish their own livelihoods. Now, whether that was ever a feasible policy or not is something I'll come on to a little bit later. But that was clearly the policy. Don't provide assistance to refugees in urban areas and make sure that they become uh, self-reliant and not dependent on international assistance. There's a very long section in the 1997 policy, I think it's about a quarter of the entire document, which talks about how UNHCR can be involved in the return of irregular movers back to their first country of asylum. Now, to the best of my knowledge, none of this policy was ever actually implemented, and I suspect that when the policy was written, nobody had really thought through the practical, operational, legal and even moral dimensions of actually returning people to their country of first asylum. But it's a very dominant feature of the 1997 policy. And then another dominant feature of the 1997 policy, I checked again a couple of days ago, there's a whole chapter on um, there's a whole chapter within the 97 policy on the issues of violence and security. And one of the main thrusts of the 97 policy was not to improve the protection and assistance and solutions available, refugee, to, available to refugees. It was how to strengthen the security of UNHCR staff and UNHCR offices so they weren't attacked by these very difficult, dangerous and demanding people. And just to give you a little bit of a flavour of the policy, I'm just going <coughs> to quote, quote a few lines, a few paragraphs, just to kind of give you a sense of uh, what was said in that policy. Okay, so it, firstly, the policy acknowledged that this policy is likely to result in a more restrictive approach to the provision of care and maintenance assistance than hitherto, which was a kind of a rather sophisticated way of saying we're going to cut off their wages. I mean, there was going to be no more assistance uh, unless exceptional circumstances provided to urban refugees. 
Second quote, which I, I find quite amusing. Life in urban areas does not constitute an answer to refugees' problems and may well be significantly more difficult. This was something that was dreamt up in Geneva. I don't believe that anybody actually went and spoke to refugees in urban and rural areas and asked which do you prefer, which do you find easiest, which do you find most difficult. It was at this time an article of faith within UNHCR that life in urban areas does not constitute an answer to refugees' problems. Of course, it suited the organisation's imperatives at the same time. A few more quotes from the 1997 policy. Protection and solutions can best be achieved by ensuring that refugees remain as close as possible to their country of origin. Again, I remember very clearly in the mid to late 1990s, this was a mantra that one heard very regularly in UNHCR, that you're doing a favour to refugees by ensuring that they remain as close as possible to their country of origin. I don't think anybody looked at the empirical evidence to see if this was actually the case. And I don't think anybody actually asked refugees themselves whether they wanted to remain as close as possible to their country of origin. My suspicion is if you'd have asked them, a lot of said, we want to get as far away as possible. (laughs) But that was what was in the policy. And then perhaps one of the most shocking paragraphs I find in in the 97 policy is the following one. Particular nationalities tend to dominate the urban refugee caseload. Some have a long history of migration related to trade and or a nomadic tradition. And again, to me, and I think the writers of the policy particularly had Afghans and Somalis in mind when they wrote this, to me this was a rather subtle way of saying we should really question whether these people are refugees, whether they're in need of protection or are they moving for economic or nomadic regions. And then just to wrap up on the 97 policy... Coming back to the issue that I flagged earlier on, this whole question of um, per capita costs, urban refugees, while constituting less than 1% of UNHCR's total caseload, demand a disproportionate amount, 10 to 15% of its resources. Again, I'm not quite sure where that calculation came from, but that became an article of faith that it, it was 10 to 15 uh, that while refugees constituted only 1% of UNHCR's total caseload, they were absorbing 10 to 15% of its resources. So there was a kind of argument, on, almost a kind of on the basis of equity, mm-hmm. we should do less for urban refugees because they're getting more than their fair share of the pie. Um, and then finally, coming back to the whole question of security, again, quite a shocking statement, I think, to, to, to read in a UNHCR policy statement. It says, it is, and it comes back to the question of irregular movement, it is often those refugees who succeed in moving from one country to another who become aggressive and violent. And then my favourite line of all, giving in to violent forms of protest does not pay. I mean, it could have come from a police manual, not from a UNHCR <laughs> policy. Um, so that's the 1997 policy. Now, Let me move on to say a little bit about reactions and responses to the 1997 policy. I think within UNHCR UNHCR itself, it received a bit of a mixed reception. A lot of people were quite happy with it, um, were prepared to agree with the assumptions on which it was based and were prepared to agree to the recommendations which it made. Others, including myself, were less happy. Um, But I don't think there was a a, a very serious... Um, discourse within the organisation at the time. Where the really negative reaction came was from the NGO community who read the document, reacted very strongly to its kind of overall negative tone, even punitive tone in some respects and at a meeting um, with the um, Assistant High Commissioner for 
operations, Soren Jessen Peterson, his name was at the time, um, basically held a meeting with him and said that they weren't prepared to um, go along with this policy and that they wanted it to be revised. UNHCR immediately reacted by introducing a modified version of the policy which kind of removed some of the worst elements of it but in essence the 1997 policy was retained. But the Assistant High Commissioner for Operations at that time did a very smart thing. When he was confronted uh, with this NGO reaction and Human Rights Watch played a particularly strong role on this, they produced a report on it in uh, 2002, Um, he did a very smart thing at that meeting. He said Dear NGO colleagues, I fully share your concerns. I appreciate why you're so disappointed with this new policy. And in fact, I'm disappointed with it myself. And for that reason, I've asked our evaluation unit to look very hard at the policy, to look hard at the way it's being implemented, and to recommend any revisions that are necessary. Having made that statement to the NGOs, he rushed over to my office and said, Jeff, I've just, put, I've just promised the NGOs we're going to do an evaluation. You better start it straight away. <laughs> Which was quite an interesting reaction. So we did actually initially this process of evaluation in 1999. But as I've already said, in fact, no new policy appeared from UNHCR on the urban refugee issue until 2009, which was 10 years later. Now, just let me set the stage for the rest of this presentation. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I call the policy-making standoff that took place between 1999 and 2009. And as I've said here on the slide, I'm saying that during this period, UNHCR's policy-making process on urban refugees was on the one hand held back by a number of different obstacles, but at the same time was also pushed forward by a variety of different drivers. And I'm going to argue that the drivers eventually overcame the obstacles, but it took a decade for that standoff to be resolved. And even then, and this is where we come on to Mary Beth's part of the presentation, and even then, UNHCR was still confronted with the additional challenge of moving from the process of policy formulation to the process of policy implementation. So let's spend a few minutes then looking at what I call the policy-making standoff that occurred in this decade-long period. I would argue that there were a number of obstacles to the policy-making process during this period. Firstly, as I've already suggested, there was little consensus within the organisation. It wasn't as if everybody was saying, yes, we have to retain the 1997 policy. It wasn't as if everybody was saying, no, it's a complete failure, we have to go to something else. There was very little consensus. And when you have little consensus within an organisation such as UNHCR, the easiest thing is just to stay put and really do nothing. Secondly, I would argue there was really an absence of external, particularly state, pressure. I don't recall any time states coming forward and saying, look, you promised an evaluation of your policy, you promised to review the way it was working out in practice, where have you got with that process and what are you going to do about it? I simply don't remember any external state pressure in that respect. I think we would have to say that the standoff in the policy-making process was to some extent, maybe even a large extent, uh, a result of weak organisational leadership. I remember during the early early 2000s we produced a number of alternative drafts 
of the urban refugee policy, which we felt were an improvement on the 1997 policy, nobody at the senior level from the High Commissioner down was prepared to say, yes, that's the one we need to sign off on. It was a lot of humming and hollering, a lot of discussion, but nobody was really prepared to kind of pin their flag to the mast and say, this is the draft that we go with, let's publish it. As I've already mentioned, there was some kind of NGO, the whole review process, the whole evaluation process of the urban refugee policy was essentially sparked by NGO involvement, NGO engagement and NGO disappointment. And I have to say that there was some kind of resentment within UNHCR at the fact that its policy making process was being pushed forward by the NGO community. I mean, I didn't hear anybody say this, but the kind of, to paraphrase the thought is, you know, who do these guys think they are? They come and tell us that we've got our policy wrong. We're UNHCR, we're the International Organisation for Refugees. Why are these little NGOs coming and telling us we've got it wrong? So there was a kind of resentment at the NGO involvement, and almost, I think, among some members of staff attended to say, no, let's forget the NGOs, let's continue with what we agreed to in 1997. There was also, and I already drew attention to that part of the policy that said, you know, uh, violent pro- we shouldn't give way to violent protests. Well, what, there was one particular location, and I think, James, I think you might have even been there at the time, where the urban refugee policy was introduced in a fairly abrupt way. As I said, refugees were being provided with daily, ca- uh, sorry, monthly cash payments. Uh, to the best of my recollection, and James will correct me if I'm wrong, these were kind of these were uh, withdrawn at fairly short notice on the official grounds that these people are now become self-reliant and they don't need the cash payments anymore. And there was very little done, as far as I remember, to actually prepare people for self-reliance, to give them the tools and the capacities and the capital uh, to become self-reliant. They were simply told, no more money, become self-reliant. And this was a policy which was implemented in New Delhi by somebody whose name I won't mention, but was extremely influential within the organisation. And again, there was a bit of a negative reaction to this at the Geneva level. Who are these refugees to tell us we've got it wrong? Who are these refugees to protest that they want continued assistance? Let's stick with what we've got rather than giving in to this violent protest, as the policy itself said. And then finally, and here perhaps I will tread into a slightly broader area of policy making, I think the standoff in the policy making process on urban refugees in this decade long period was symptomatic of a lack of accountability of UNHCR, particularly by its executive committee. And the point I'd like to make here, and I'll just make it in general, is that if you look through successive speeches, statements, documents, etc., produced by UNHCR, UNHCR produced all kinds of commitments. And this has been particularly the case with respect to the High Commissioner's dialogues on refugee protection, which have taken place since 2009. Every year, the High Commissioner and the organisation as a whole makes a whole range of commitments. We will do this, we will do this, we will do this. Very, very few occasions that I can remember where any ex-con member or ex-con as a whole has said, well, excuse me, have you actually done that? What about this commitment? Have you actually implemented it? So I think the UNHCR's ability to go a whole decade continually saying, we're reviewing the, pro- the policy, we're looking at it, we're trying to revise it. Nobody really called UNHCR to account throughout that whole period. Okay, now what I want to suggest is that in the successive period, Sorry, during this period, 1999 to 2009, things were not static. As well as the obstacles that I've already identified to the policy-making process, as well as this standoff that I tried to um, say a little bit about, 
There are also a number of drivers taking place that were pushing the policy in new directions. Firstly was simply the process, the global process of urbanisation. The world was becoming a more urbanised place. It wasn't that long ago that I think we went through the 50% of the world's population living in urban areas. And of course refugees were not immune to this process. Just as the world was becoming more urbanised, so too were refugees becoming more <coughs> urbanised. And this had to do with a number of different things which I'm sure you're aware of. The improved communications that refugees enjoyed through mobile phones, through the, eventually through the internet, etc., meant that they were much better informed about new pathways, new opportunities, <coughs> new livelihoods, um, capacities that they had. And that led to more mobility, more refugees took the decision either not to go to a camp at all, to bypass the camp and go straight to an urban area, or alternatively to spend some time in, an urban, in, in a refugee camp, but then finally to move on to an urban area. And this was very much related to the whole discourse that was taking place at this time about protracted refugee situations, where certainly the research that we did within UNHCR, and I think research by many other people, demonstrated that conditions tended to become worse the longer a refugee camp was in existence. You would think it might be, or you'd hope at least it might be the other way around. You set up a refugee camp in the early stages of an emergency, the conditions are dire, but after 5, 10, 15 or 20 years, conditions gradually improve and get better for the refugees. What we and other people found was that not at all the case, that as protracted <coughs> refugee situations went out of the international spotlight, the level of funding for them went down and conditions actually deteriorated. What did refugees do who were stuck in that situation? <coughs> Well, they voted with their feet by leaving the camps and going to urban areas and to take advantage of the opportunities that were available there. And uh, just to be very predictable, I mean, the obvious example of this tendency is that of the Dadaab refugee camps in northeastern Kenya and Kenya's capital city of Nairobi, where during this period we saw a steady drift of people from Dadaab to Nairobi, despite the fact, and this is, of course is still very much a live issue, despite the fact that the Kenyan authorities had very firmly set their face against refugees moving to urban areas and had introduced, with UNHCR's connivance, it could be said, a variety of mechanisms to try and prevent refugees from leaving the camp and moving to the capital city. There are a number of other drivers of the policy-making process uh, between 1999 and 2009, which again, I think, were pushing UNHCR policy in new directions. Increasingly, UNHCR found itself in situations where it had to deal with refugees in countries where camps were not an option. And of course, the most important example of this in, during this particular period, um, the early 2000s especially, was the Iraq emergency, where Iraqi refugees going to places such as Jordan and Syria and Lebanon did not have the option of going to a camp. And this really required UNHCR to start thinking, is a strategy which is based entirely on keeping refugee camps viable when so many refugees are living outside of camps and particularly in urban areas. Now of course this whole scenario has assumed a new urgency in the last three or four years with the Syrian crisis but I would argue that it really started with Iraq where refugees fled in significant numbers, not as large as were thought at the time but fled in significant numbers to countries where camps were not an option. Changing demographics 
During the earlier period of discussion about urban refugee policy in the mid to late 1990s, there was a very common assumption that all urban refugees are young, single males of working age, and often angry young men of working age. And I think the evidence that was collected during this period began to show increasingly that not only were larger numbers of refugees moving to urban areas, but also that their profile was changing and that the demographics of the urban refugee population was moving away from this traditional young single male to a much more diversified um, scenario. And I think some credit perhaps a lot of credit can be given uh, in this respect to the whole age, gender and diversity mainstreaming initiative taken in UNHCR at this time, which really for the first time forced UNHCR offices, UNHCR staff members to look much more closely at the profile of the population and to try and identify which groups were involved in any given refugee population. And that thrust from the people who were leading the age, gender and diversity mainstreaming initiative led us to realise, after a long time of denial, denial perhaps, led us to realise that refugees in urban areas are not just single young men, their children, their teenagers, their young women, their older people, their people with disabilities, people with AIDS and other medical conditions, etc. And I think, again, that was another important driver of the policy-making process. One of the questions I often get asked, or have been asked a lot in the past, is can you give me an example of where academic research has actually influenced policy? And it's a, it's a, it's a question I really dread getting, because I always find it very difficult to find good examples. Uh, I'm very pleased to say that in this particular instance, I think academic research did play quite a significant role in changing the way that we looked at urban refugees and urban refugee policy, particularly those of us who were actually working on it on more or less a full-time basis. And uh, in this respect, I've got to give credit to some people who are in the room today, so I recognise Nick Van Heer, Ollie Bakewell, uh, people who are not in this room, Katie Long, who was here in Oxford, and Cindy Horst, who's in uh, Prio in, in Oslo. People who had worked very much on the whole question of mobility and transna transnationalism demonstrating that you know, refugees are not static, they don't just stay in one place, they move around to take advantage and maximise the opportunities that are available to them and minimise the risks which confront them. And I think this recognition of mobility and the normality of mobility for refugees really played quite an important role in shaping thinking uh, in this urban refugee domain. Penultimately, I, again, um, at the risk of sounding very obsequious, I think the new High Commissioner, Mr Guterres, who came into office in 2006, played a very important role in pushing the urban refugee policy forward. If you look at the speeches and statements that he gave around this time, he would often talk about <coughs> megatrends. And some of the key megatrends that he referred to and which he thought had important implications for UNHCR and its operations were the megatrends of migration, not only international migration but also internal migration, uh, and urbanisation. These are very dominant themes of his speeches and statements at that time and he was very keen to put the issues of migration and urbanisation onto the UNHCR agenda. Similarly, um, the issue of encampment, um, if I could just demonstrate this kind of anecdotally. I remember once having a conversation with the High Commissioner not too long after he'd come into office and he said, 
Jeff, one thing I don't really understand is that we're colluding and conniving with states to keep refugees in camps. We make it as difficult as possible for them to leave. We introduce all kinds of mechanisms that stop them or deter them from leaving. But I thought we were meant to be a human rights organisation. I thought we were meant to believe in freedom of movement. What's gone wrong? And I think, you know, from that moment of time, the High Commissioner Guterres was very personally instrumental in pushing the issue forward. In fact, just to demonstrate that, when he decided to set up this new series of meetings called the High Commissioner's Dialogue on Protection Issues, the very first one in 2009, he chose as his theme urban refugees. And I think that was kind of symptomatic of his commitment to the issue. And then finally, I've put the panic was a major driver of the policy-making process because what happened was that the High Commissioner organised, I think, in around August 2009, that, the, that his protection dialogue would focus on the issue of urban refugees. And suddenly somebody said, well, yeah, but we can't go into this protection dialogue without the new refugee policy that we've been offering to the international community for the last 10 years. So we've got to really get going and get this policy out. And just at a personal level, I remember the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection, Erica Feller, came to me said, Jeff, you've just done an evaluation of UNHCR's urban refugee programs for Iraqi refugees. You must know a little bit about urban refugees. Do you think in six weeks you can come up with a new policy? And it was really the panic to get that policy produced and get agreement on it by the time of the High Commissioner's dialogue that really was the, kind of the tipping point in that particular policy-making process. Okay, so let me just say about, a little bit about the new policy and how it differed from the old policy, and then I'll hand over to Mary Beth to say something about the implementation process. Okay, a few key characteristics and elements of the new policy that was introduced in September 2009. Firstly, it very deliberately focused on the issue of protections and solutions and tried to link the issue of urban refugees directly to the UNHCR mandate. So um, maybe this is um, not a very strong point, but just look at the language. The 1997 policy was called UNHCR policy on urban refugees. The 2009 policy was called UNHCR policy on protection and solutions for refugees in urban areas. It's a subtle change, but I think it's, it, it's, it's a meaningful change. The key element of the policy was actually to defend freedom of movement and defend mobility, not only within countries but also between countries, and in that respect the new policy directly contradicted the whole discourse and irregular movement which had taken place in the past. Um, I think unlike the 1997 policy, the 2009 policy actually identified the most common human rights violations and abuses that urban refugees confronted on a day-to-day -day basis and pledged UNHCR to try and address them, the most common being things such as detention, eviction, harassment and extortion by both um, employers and by landlords. <coughs> Where the policy tried to kind of go a little bit softly in terms of the 1997 policy was it didn't recommend providing assistance to all refugees. It took the point that, uh, limit, that assistance provided to urban refugees had to be limited, but I think more constructively than the 1907 policy, it put much more focus on providing refugees with access to livelihoods and the labour market so that, in fact, they would not have to rely on cash payments provided on a monthly basis by UNHCR. So no assistance in normal circumstances, but a much greater emphasis on livelihoods and the labour market. A 
few more key elements of the policy. A strong emphasis on providing refugees in urban areas with residence rights. Now, not only residence rights in a kind of theoretical or legal way, but also documentation to prove that they have a right to live in an urban area which they could present to the authorities or could present to the police when they were confronted by them. A strong emphasis on integrating urban refugee populations into existing public and private services and limiting refugee-specific services. Now, this entailed a major kind of change of mentality on the part of UNHCR, which had been used to working in camps where you bring in your specialised NGOs, you set up your health centres for refugees, your schools for refugees, uh, your food distribution systems for refugees. The new policy suggested that we shouldn't be establishing refugee-specific services. We should be trying to integrate refugees into existing public and private services. Another key element of the policy I would suggest is the need for better outreach to urban refugee populations and simply a better knowledge of urban refugee populations, which had really been absent in the past and had only really got going with the whole age, gender and diversity mainstreaming initiative. And then finally, a recognition of the fact that in urban areas particularly, urban uh, refugees live side by side, cheek by jowl, with other members of the urban poor. And that any policy that UNHCR produced related to urban refugees should also try to ensure that they enjoyed harmonious relationships with the people living around them. So again, just in contrast to the 1997 policy, I'm going to pull out a few statements from the 2009 policy, which I think will give you a kind of the different flavour of the two documents. So firstly, the paper is quite proud of the fact that it's new. This paper marks the beginning of a new approach with regard to the way that UNHCR addresses the issue of refugees in urban areas. Another important statement, the rights of refugees and UNHCR's responsibilities towards them are not affected by their location or their status in national legislation. Now, this last clause, or their status in national legislation, was subject to a great deal of discussion. The basic inference here was that even if a country such as Kenya doesn't want urban refugees and tries to prevent refugees going to Nairobi, that shouldn't affect UNHCR's responsibility. UNHCR will still try to provide those refugees with protection and solutions, irrespective. The original draft of this statement said, irrespective of national policies, in the end, it was changed to national legislation. But in a way, you could argue this was a relatively, for UNHCR at least, a relatively brave move, saying we're going to do this whether states like it or not. Again, general statement, but again, in contrast to the, kind of the whole idea of legitimate urban caseloads that you find in 1997, the purpose of the policy is to create an environment that is conducive for refugee protection and solution in urban areas urban areas are a legitimate place for refugees to reside and to enjoy their rights. And then finally, um, another statement just to draw your attention to in the 2009 policy. UNHCR has considered it essential to reconsider the organisation's position on the issue of refugees in urban areas and to adopt an approach to this matter that is more positive, more constructive and more proactive than has been the case in the past. Now, I think that's probably the closest you're ever going to get to an apology from UNHCR for anything. OK, I'm going to hand over to Mary Beth to talk about implementation. So, how we implemented this sea change. 
Um, I think really by 2012, we already had an urban refugee steering group within the organization, and about a year later, that morphed into a task team that was an interagency entity. Um, and that both those entities did a lot to really push the policy into you know the country offices and change the mindset and we talked a lot about mindset management and and getting our colleagues to to take this on um it was a lot of learning for them um in the meanwhile before 2012 there already had been about uh five evaluations in, um in different uh, cities that looked at what the the case studies of different urban refugees, and those were, I think, in uh, Sofia, um, Kuala Lumpur, Nairobi, New Delhi, San Jose, and Dushanbe. So we already had some information and some learning from those places. And as part of the steering group, we went out to two different countries to try and support them in their implementation of the policy. We went to Yaoundé specifically to help them with livelihood responses to get away from this individual cash payments and and to put together some more sophisticated livelihood programs. And um, the other place was Quito uh, to work on integration and xenophobia concerns uh, for urban refugees. I think both these subjects continue to be really big issues in implementing the urban refugee policy. Um, in 2012, there was also a survey, an internal survey of the urban refugee policies implementation. It was a survey of to our staff, they responded. There's about 100 questions, um, and so it's it's self-reporting. Nevertheless, they were incredibly critical of how the the policy was being implemented, and um, I think it was, you know, most of it was published. I think really what might not have come through as strongly as the data had was their critique of the governments who were doing refugee status determination and the quality of those services. Um, but otherwise, it's pretty clean and, you know, didn't get whitewashed at all. Um, another thing that uh, we created to help implement the policy was a website called urbangoodpractices.org, um, which some people in this room have worked on, and that was to have a repository of information of evaluations, because we saw that there were a lot of uh, the literature started to grow on this, on urban refugees. Um, so t a place where we can consolidate that, but also where we could, I'm going to show it actually in a moment, where people could go into a database and say, I want to see good practices on livelihoods, or I want to see good practices in Kenya, or I want to see Mercy Corps programs. And they could search by those uh, parameters and, and find case studies of good practices. But also it was a place where we could park tools and guidelines. And it was the place that we found um, a home for the Urban Refugee Learning Program, which is an eight-module online uh, learning course that um, introduces the concept of urban refugees. There are a couple modules on livelihoods. There's a module on uh, shelter. There's one on healthcare. There's one on education and youth. So that we could get this, you know, we have 9,000 employees all over the world. So to do this sort of retooling of the UNHCR staff, you know, we needed something like this where we could reach a lot of people. And it was the first time that we took a UNHCR learning program and put it on a public website where they didn't have to have login credentials or anything. So you can also go to urbangoodpractices.org and go through the whole learning program. Anyone can. And we're, so we've really encouraged people to go through that, share it with the partners, share it with the governments they work with, et cetera, to try and work on this kind of mindset management. Because, you know, if, if people 
organ, uh, joined the organization in the 80s and 90s and cut their teeth on camps, this is such a radically different way to see how we work with people of concern and how we should be serving them. Um, so that, that's one of the things. And then we also created, uh, well, the Department of, uh, or Division of um, Program Support and Management created operational guidelines on education, health, livelihoods. So I would say that like by the end of last year, um, Again, Caitlin helped me with this one, too. We started a literature review, and we saw that the literature was replete with lots of descriptions of the difficulties and challenges faced by urban refugees. And we saw that we were coming forward with, you know, guidance on health and stuff. But that guidance was really at this thou shalt kind of level. Like, you know, and, and it's the stuff that most people already knew, like do no harm, listen actively, et cetera, et cetera. But what I was getting from my colleagues is like, yeah, this is great and, and this, is, this is very you know, high-minded, but exactly how do we do it? And our budgets keep getting cut. And you know, is it really more expensive to have urban refugee programming? And so we decided that it was really time to go to the field and find out exactly how some people were, were managing to implement this policy. And what's different here is that we didn't want to just ask UNHCR staff again because, you know, we felt like that, that of course, is very biased. But we wanted to bring our partners, and, and meaning our government partners also, into this discussion. So we actually got funded um, by uh, BPRM to hold workshops in the five regional areas where we have three-day good practice exchanges. And so we um, invite UNHCR staff and our key partners in urban areas, and they describe specific urban, uh, specific activities um, for urban refugees. And they do it, we formulate it on panels, and, and they have 10-minute presentations. And it's, it's not at all like, you know, UNHCR experts come out to the field and say, you should do it this way, you should do it that way. It, it's completely horizontal learning, participant-led. And it's, it's also been very interesting to, to organize this within UNHCR and coach people on how to do this. Um, and it's been quite effective. We've had the workshops in Asia and in Africa so far. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about what the, um, what the findings are for them. Um, and in addition to those regional exchanges, the grant also gave us money to do a roundtable in an urban area, in one city, in that particular region. So, for example, we just did a roundtable on xenophobia in um, uh, Pretoria on three, for three of the townships there. Um, so that we could also go deeper into what the problems are. Um, so on urbangoodpractices.org or the PDS website, you can find the example of uh, the workshop reports. Um, and this is our way of, you know, sort of widening our networks um, on good practices and exchanges. And then the roundtables allow us to go deeper into the communities and see what the problems are for urban refugees. I am really conscious of time. So I'm not going to go into all of these findings um, from the two different workshops so far. Um, but what I, I can say is that you can find it in the reports. Um, but what I will say very briefly is that the urban refugee policy has really, it's a global policy. And I think that what's been interesting and important to realize too is that it's going to be implemented not necessarily differently in regional areas, but there's, there's going to be a regional flavor. And so we're trying to preserve the integrity of what it says, 
but with very different requirements in each of the regions. Um, so this, both the roundtables and the workshops have given us a chance to study how it's, it has been able to be implemented. I think it's been really meaningful and, and positive to have our partners there too, and because they've managed to find other apertures for being able to implement that perhaps UNHCR staff haven't been able to see. Um, but and it, it's different in different areas. I, I can say that definitely. I can say I'm preparing uh, for the workshop for the Americas. And really, you know, I can see the agendas that evolve out of the good practices that get sent in by the participants. Because I don't write the agenda. They write the agenda by the good practices that they send to me. And their workshop is all about integration and livelihoods and, um, you know, the, the relationships with governments, where in Africa it was really... <laughs> You can see it was really more about, yeah, it's, livelihoods is always on the agenda and access to national services and community outreach was a little bit more still like shelters and community centers, whereas in Asia it was, you know, livelihoods, access to systems, but um, also um, more more about refugee agency and empowerment of, of refugee groups and, and UNHCR or partners or international NGOs actually being a liaison for them but, but making them more independent. So I won't go into this detail because of the time um, but maybe we can talk about what some of the implementation issues are. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just do the first three maybe. Okay. Okay. So one of the criticisms of the new policy when it was introduced in 2009, particularly from donor states and particularly from the USA, was that the policy hadn't taken any account of the financial and human resource implications. What would it actually cost and how many more staff members would you need to effectively implement the policy? And that issue, I think, has continued to halt the organisation to some extent. Um, on the financial issue, for example, I've been trying to find out what difference the urban refugee policy has made to UNHCR's program in Nairobi. Does UNHCR actually devote more resources, more staff to the Nairobi program than it did prior to the introduction of the new policy? And um, UNHCR is either unable or unwilling to provide that data. So uh, the financial and human resource implications were not considered and tracking the financial commitment of the organisation to urban refugee programs is very difficult. Um, all policies have to be, well, let me say, all policies in an organisation like UNHCR have to be formulated on the basis of some kind of consensus. And um, consensus often leads to ambiguity, and there are certainly some ambiguities in the policy which resulted from the need to ensure consensus. Um, one of the things I already mentioned was that we, we've, we were obliged eventually to include a section on irregular movement in the 2009 policy, even though it was very much against our, 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 kind of our interests and our concerns. <coughs> the whole question of host state policies, how do you actually implement a UNHCR policy in countries where the government policy is actually against that kind of approach? And then finally, a very major part of the policy is that of the need for UNHCR to find new partners to move away from its traditional NGO partners to forge new alliances with municipalities, with mayors, with development agencies. Um, I think that has proven to be more difficult in practice than it was to write in a policy. Uh. Yeah, but I think it's inspired a lot of creativity. And even when it comes to the host state policies, I mean, we've used things like the Convention Against Torture, 
uh, to be able to implement the urban refugee policy. We've looked at um, collaborations that we didn't have before with development actors and with with very different actors sometimes. Um, so it's I think it's really prompted people to be more creative um, and not you know, kind of get stuck in a rut. Um, I think the new emergencies that we have are are shaping it also, that we have a lot more emergencies in urban centers. Um, and, yeah, new issues, I think we... What the last two? The last two alternatives, many of you probably know about the alternatives to camps policy, which basically says that, you know, camps are an option of last resort. Um, and then... Um, the humanitarian action in urban areas, just that it's, that's, it's a much broader topic than urban refugees. And sometimes my fear is that refugees get lost in those discussions um, and, and sort of get overrun in, in addressing the... Yeah, just on that issue, I mean, if you look, at, for example, at the World Humanitarian Summit, mm. it, it, it does look uh, to some extent at humanitarian action urban sorry humanitarian action in urban areas but it doesn't look at refugees in urban areas so I think to some extent the very specific focus that UNHCR uh, had on urban refugees from 2009 onwards has been somewhat diluted by the broader focus on alternatives to camps and on humanitarian action in urban areas in general mm -hmm. I would agree okay great um, thank you very much for more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.